Well, good morning, Mount Vernon. It is good to see you this morning. And uh, as you just heard, and as I'm sure you know, we are only a few short days away from Christmas. So kids, you can go ahead and start rejoicing. And that means we have Christmas Eve this Thursday, and there's going to be millions of Americans across the country on Christmas Eve going to Christmas Eve services at churches across the country. Uh, we hope you join us right here at, at Mount Vernon on Christmas Eve on Thursday to, to celebrate with us, to worship with us. We're going to be here at 5 p.m., and we're going to be gathering to celebrate the birth of our Savior. Well, it was a, a several years ago uh, before Delane and I had moved back to Atlanta, and actually I think it was before Delane and I had even met, that I came back to Atlanta to celebrate Christmas with my family, to spend Christmas with my parents and my siblings. And as part of that, we did what millions of Americans are going to do this coming Christmas Eve. We went to a Christmas Eve service, and we went to a Christmas Eve service at a fairly large church here in the Atlanta area. We didn't get there early. And it was a mistake because the place was packed. It was really full. We were very lucky to get some seats in the back of the auditorium. Uh, we were packed in there. There didn't seem to be an empty seat in the place. Uh, well, right before the service started, there was a family that came in even later than we did. They, they came in hurriedly. You could tell they were a little bit flustered. And the father took one look around and saw the crowd that had gathered there, didn't see empty, any empty seats for his family, and I'll never forget what he said. He turned to his wife and he said something like, well, I tried, but there aren't any seats, so let's go. Uh, with that, they turned and left. They couldn't have been there for more than five or, or ten seconds. And his message was clear. He didn't really want to be there in the first place. He was just trying to please his wife. He didn't seem to be doing a very good job of that, uh, I might add. But he was essentially saying, I did what you asked, I came, but I'm not willing to put in any more work to make this happen. Like, don't you see, there's no seats, we're either going to have to sit apart, we're going to have to stand in the back, I don't really want to go walk and have everybody look at me as I go hunting for seats. So, like, I don't know what in, was in that man's heart. Um, as much as we don't want Christmas Eve to be a hurried time, at times it can be, but at least on that night, he was not there to worship Jesus. He was not there to worship the divine Savior. Uh, at least for that night, he was not led to a humble worship of the God of the universe who humbled himself and came as a baby 2,000 years ago. If he was a Christian, he had lost his sense of, of awe over his salvation. And if he wasn't, he, he certainly did not see his need that night for a divine Savior. So though I'm sure there were others there that night who felt the same way as this man who probably had other stuff that they preferred to be doing than gathering and worshiping on Christmas Eve, well, he came to a room full of people who were there to gather and worship, largely there to gather and worship, and he missed it. He didn't understand what was going on, and he was not clearly seeing Jesus for who he is. Well, if you will, this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this morning, we're going to examine another story in which the people present did not see Jesus for who he was. So our story for this morning comes a number of years after that night that Jesus was born. Uh, Jesus is an adult. It's at the beginning of his public ministry. And the different reactions to Jesus at this time as he begins his, his public ministry, they're already beginning to crystallize. As people are beginning to be confronted with this man who is doing miraculous things, he's teaching in an authoritative way, and this question of who is this man start to be raised. You see the crowds and the people start to react to it. So we see some who are confronted with the powerful and authoritative Son of God and missed it. 
those who did not have eyes to see and ears to hear, the Savior who stood in their midst. But we're also presented with a story in which a few people responded rightly. They responded in faith. Uh, so this text is going to be familiar to many of you, if not most of you. It's the story from Mark's gospel of Jesus he healing the paralytic, uh, the man who was lowered down through the roof by his friends. It's an amazing story. It's one that kind of sticks with you once you've heard it. So this may not have been the text you expected to hear the Sunday before Christmas. If you were listening to Brad's announcement, you realize it might not have been the text that we expected you to hear the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, but in many ways, this text is a wonderful sermon to hear the Sunday before Christmas, because in it we get a, such a clear picture of why it is that Jesus came, what he came on earth to do, why we celebrate this miraculous birth from 2,000 years ago. So the main point of the story is to demonstrate our need for forgiveness and to make clear that Jesus is the only one with the power and authority to forgive. Friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to forgive sins, to reconcile sinners to God. This is why Jesus' birth led the angels to proclaim peace on earth and goodwill uh, to men, because Jesus came to save sinners. But friends, as we walk through this story this morning, I, I want you to also see that this story from Mark's gospel, the story of the paralytic, invites a response. It invites a response from those who hear and invited a response from those who were there that day. It invites you to wrestle with the question of, well, who is this Jesus? And so follow along with me as I read, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, and he being Jesus, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, this morning I want to look, through, look at this story through the lens of the characters in the story, to look at their reactions to, to Jesus, and close by asking you a question, and, and that question is, is, what is your own response to Jesus this morning? Uh, what's the answer to the question as you wrestle with this question of, who is this man? Who is Jesus? So I have three points for us to consider this morning. The first is the friends of the paralytic and Jesus' response. The second is the scribes and Jesus' response. And then the third is Jesus and your response. Uh, so first, the friends of the paralytic and Jesus' response. Uh, well, the first two verses here in, in Mark's account of the story, they kind of set the scene for us. Je Jesus has just returned to the city of Capernaum, a city in Galilee, which served as something of his home base during his, his ministry in Galilee, the, the early part of his public ministry. And he doesn't want his presence to be known. Mark seems to report that he's trying to keep a low profile. 
but after a few days or at least a brief period of time, news spreads that Jesus is back in town, and it seems like immediately the crowds start flocking to see him. Uh, so many people come, in fact, that there isn't even room at the door of the house in which he is staying for people to gather. And so in some sense, even at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, there was an overwhelming response and interest in his ministry. He's drawing big reactions. And if we, were, if we rewind this morning to Mark chapter 1, we see why. And Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he immediately starts giving demonstrations of his own power and authority. He had been in Capernaum prior to this, and, and we saw when he first comes to Capernaum back in Mark chapter 1, the people of that city, well, they recognize his authoritative teaching as he comes into the synagogue and he proclaims the word of the Lord. He goes on to cast out demons. He goes on to heal the sick. And so Mark gives this picture of Jesus' authority over the physical and spiritual realms, even at this early part of his ministry. The picture of the powers of darkness on the run, the effects of sin being reversed as the kingdom of God has drawn near in Christ. So with all this going on as Jesus is in Capernaum, this, the first time he's in Capernaum there in Mark 1, well, as you can imagine, before long, Jesus' fame becomes pretty great. So great, in fact, that Mark reports that in Mark chapter 1, verse 33, that the whole city was gathered together at the door. So a picture that sounds very much like our own story this morning. People were crowding there to see Jesus. So Jesus makes the decision to withdraw from the city for a time in order to preach to the people in other towns in Galilee. You can see this in Mark 1, 38. And when he does this, he gives something of a purpose statement to his disciples by telling them that this preaching ministry of his was his primary purpose or his primary mission. Uh, something we see echoed in our text today when Jesus makes it clear that the signs and the wonders that he performs, they weren't an end in and of themselves. They were not the reason fundamentally that he came, but they pointed to something greater. Uh, Jesus didn't come for our physical needs, but for the needs of our soul. It's why that he went around preaching and teaching. But as Jesus continues to move about Galilee, he continues to heal. His fame continues to grow to the point that at the end of chapter 1, Mark reports that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So it's at this point in the story that, that our narrative picks up as Jesus quietly slips back into Capernaum. You can understand now why he quietly slips back in, that he could not openly enter a town because people were just going to gather. That's exactly what happens once the news starts to spread. And Jesus in our story, he begins teaching the people that gather. We see that in the text that Jesus begins teaching them. He's at work proclaiming the gospel. And into that scene comes the paralytic and his friends. So just picture yourself in the, in the shoes of the paralytic and his friends for a moment. And you know, though it isn't certain, I think it's probably likely that this man has been paralyzed for quite some time. It's quite possible that he has been paralyzed for his whole life. Uh, however long he's been paralyzed, at this point in time, he is confined to a lifetime going forward, a lifetime of immobility, uh, a lifetime of want and, and need, especially in that time and in that place, and his, his friends knew it. But then there's this ray of hope. Jesus, this man who's been healing all these people who are brought to him, who's been healing the sick and the lame, he is back in town. And so in great hope, and in great desperation, these friends pick up the mat of their friend and take him to see Jesus. 
but there's a, there's a problem. It's a problem we've already discussed. As soon as they get to the house, they find it so full that no single one of them could enter the house, much less four of them carrying a mat with their friend and somehow wiggle their way all the way to see Jesus. So some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking that if that was you, if you had been one of those friends, you might have reacted something like that man at Christmas Eve. Well, you know what? We gave it a good effort, but we're not going to be able to make it in. Come on, let's go. It's not worth it. Uh, but that is not what these men did. Despite the obstacles of the crowd, these friends proved themselves to be faithful, devoted, and persistent friends. They demonstrate great faith. Instead of giving up and heading home, they carry their friend to the roof of the house and dig their way, literally dig their way to see Jesus. So it was common for the roofs in that time, the roofs of those homes, that there to be flat roofs with staircases on the outside of the home leading up. Uh, the roofs were made of thatch and mud, tile, so it was quite possible for someone to actually dig through to, to make a hole in the roof. Now, it would have certainly made a mess in the room below, as, as you might imagine. It would have certainly drawn the attention of the crowds and Jesus himself. But these men were willing to risk that embarrassment, the attention that they were going to draw to get their friends to the feet of Jesus. So as a quick aside, brothers and sisters, I hope that your desire is to be a friend like this. Men and women who love those who the Lord has put in their midst, uh, love those with whom they encounter the way that these friends did. Uh, what a gift to have friends like these four who cared more for their friends' good than their own comfort. Uh, they went to quite an inconvenience to serve their friend. And I also pray that you're marked by the same desire to draw near to your Savior. And I speak from personal experience, but quite often we can lose the battle simply to get up out of the bed this, in the morning uh, to spend time with Jesus. And yet we see these men who are willing to dig through a roof to get to him. But I don't think you should miss the fact that though this undoubtedly interrupted Jesus' teaching, he doesn't get angry at these men. He doesn't rebuke them. He's not mad that he was interrupted. He has compassion on them and turns and gives them his full attention. He's pulled away from his teaching and puts full attention on these men. Now, to be honest, how many of you would respond in this same way? And how many of you respond when you are interrupted? Think back to the last time. It may have been your kids pulling you away from what you're doing because it sounded like they were jumping through the ceiling. Or when a neighbor catches you in a driveway conversation when you get home from work and all you want to do is, is get inside. When your spouse interrupts you reading or watching TV to ask a question. When a friend asks you to give up part of your weekend to help them move. When your Christmas plans get thrown out of the window. Do you respond in those moments with the love and compassion that Jesus did? Do you serve others by giving them your attention? Or do you serve yourself by getting angry and impatient, just wanting to get back to what you wanted to do? Well, friends, I think you should take note of the way Jesus loved and served these men. And also note that by his love and his compassion, by the way he served these men, uh, that he created a teaching moment for the rest of those present. So at this point, I mean, all eyes have to be on the paralytic, right? I mean, there's this guy getting lowered down by his four friends. He is dropping through the ceiling. They're probably hoping he's not going to fall. And the whole crowd has to be waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. You know, here is this man, Jesus, who has been healing all those who are brought to him. He's been casting out demons. I mean, you know, maybe the crowd is getting excited at this point. Is he going to heal this man? This has to be what the friends, the paralytic himself, and perhaps the crowds expected Jesus to do. They 
expected Jesus to turn and heal this man of his disability. But instead, Jesus, seeing their faith, he turns and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. So like the plot of a good book or your favorite movie, this is the twist in the story intended to draw your attention. Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness was surprising. It was unexpected. When everyone was waiting to see if he would heal this man, he offered forgiveness instead. And in doing so, Jesus revealed a fundamental truth. That truth was the paralytic had a much deeper need, a more fundamental need than the need to be healed from his paralysis. He needed to be healed and cleansed from the sin that resided in his heart. His greatest need wasn't for physical healing. His greatest need was for forgiveness. And friends, this is the greatest need of us all. We've all sinned, and our sins have created a separation between us and God, a separation that can only be closed by placing our faith in the Savior who came to earth 2,000 years ago, lived the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we deserve to die. And he came, and he died in our place. And placing their faith in Jesus is exactly what these men did. If you notice in the text, it's when Jesus sees the faith of these friends who went to such great lengths to get their friend to him that he forgives the paralytic sins. The faith of these friends seemed to be a desperate faith, a resolute faith in the person of Jesus Christ. They weren't simply reluctantly willing to bring their friend to see Jesus. They were desperate to see Jesus. They had faith that it was Jesus and only Jesus who could heal their friend. They were convinced, and it was demonstrated by these desperate links that they went to to get their friend to his feet. Their faith was clearly on display in their actions. And this type of resolute faith, this type of even desperate faith, is something that Jesus commends throughout the Gospels. In Mark chapter 5, there's the woman who believes simply by touching the hem of Jesus' garment she would be made well. Well, she does touch his garment. She is made well, and Jesus turns and tells her that it was her faith that made her well. Again, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus exhorts Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, to believe that he can heal his daughter even after she has been pronounced dead. And he raises his daughter back to life. A couple of weeks ago, Dustin preached on the faith of the Syrophoenician woman who Jesus cast a demon from her daughter because of her persistent faith. You see that in Mark chapter 7. But I know that for those of you with your theological antennas up, you may struggle with the fact that it is the friend's faith that leads Jesus to forgive. Not the friend's, but he forgives the paralytic. But yet it's the faith of the friend's that is pointed out. So there's a a couple of things that one might say in response to that. I mean, one, it could be that the paralytic had a similar faith. You know, if if the paralytic had told his friend something like, you know, would you mind taking me to see Jesus? Uh, I've kind of tried everything else at this point. I'm not getting any better but I don't have anything to lose, so why don't, we, why don't we see if Jesus can do something? Well, if that was his attitude, I kind of have a hard time seeing his friends getting to a full house, deciding to haul him up on a roof, digging through and lowering him to see Jesus. Uh, but maybe. But regardless of whether that is true, the forgiveness offered to the paralytic is perfectly consistent with the biblical and reformational truths uh, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And God graciously sent Jesus to earth to call sinners to repentance. And though many heard and many saw, and we're going to see this later today, God graciously gave the gift of faith to these men. And at some point to the paralytic too, as he's forgiven and then responds in obedience and faith when Jesus tells him to get up. But if anything, 
the fact that the text draws our attention to the faith of the friends and not to the paralytic puts to bed any notion that it was the work of the paralytic, the effort of the paralytic, something commendable within the paralytic that led to his salvation. No, it was God's grace alone. Uh, God's grace that we see pictured in his physical healing, and we see Jesus speak to him as he forgives his sins. So the friends demonstrated a desperate and resolute faith in Christ alone, the only one who could heal or save. Uh, and we see Jesus forgiving. And then what happens at the end of the story? Well, both the paralytic, as we read in, in Luke's parallel account of, of this story, and, the, and those presents, the crowd, they gave glory to God for what he had done. So Mark includes this episode from the ministry of Jesus. It's, it's one to highlight our, our fundamental need for forgiveness, the need that each and every one of us have to be forgiven from our sin. But even more than that, to demonstrate the power and the authority and the divinity of Jesus, his power to forgive sins. And the reality is that God saves sinners by his grace, and he chose before the foundation of the world to save the paralytic from his friends, just like he chose before the foundation of the world to save each and every one of you who have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The reality is that being both fully man and fully God, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of these friends. He knew what was in the hearts of the paralytic. He had the power to transform their hearts. So the point Mark is making here and that all of Scripture makes is that Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus is powerful to save. Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. So this morning, don't let this story trouble you. Don't wish Mark had included a lengthy theological explanation at the end of the story to help you out. Instead, this Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, marvel at your gracious God who sent his Son into the world to save sinners and for Jesus who can save to the uttermost. Friends, the paralytic is a picture of us all unable to take even the first step of faith apart from Jesus' call to take up our mat or our cross and follow him. Brothers and sisters, praise the Lord this morning for his grace and his mercy to you. Well, that is the friends of the paralytic in Jesus' response. Uh, the second thing I want you to see, the second point is the scribes in Jesus' response. So look again with me, starting at verse 6. Uh, so after all this had happened, Mark writes, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, we've been living firmly in the Twitter age for some time now. I'm guessing it is the place that many of you turn to get instant reactions to the news or even the news itself. Uh, people can basically express their opinion at any time and for any reason. They can deliver news as it is breaking. It's fairly well documented that though this instant access to information can be a gift in many ways, that it hasn't been particularly healthy for our public discourse or for people's civility. People simply tweet without thinking or listening, and they certainly tweet without understanding. But one of the funnier things to come out of all this instant fire communication and uninformed tweeting is multiple instances of people being ignorant of who the person was to whom they were tweeting. So one of my favorites is a fan of a football team that tried to insult a fellow Twitter user by calling him a Fairweather fan, only to find out that the person to whom he was tweeting was a player on that very team. There's an, another instance of, I think, the prime minister of a country tweeting some breaking national news, something going on in that country, 
and another Twitter user asking him to provide a source for his information, and multiple instances of authors being asked by oblivious Twitter users if they have read their own works. They have some point of disagreement, they think they're going to insult this person by asking them if they've even read the book, only to find out that that is the author. So these people did not realize the people to whom they were tweeting. Well, that's a little bit of what the scribes do in response to Jesus here. Jesus tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven, and immediately some of the scribes begin to question in their hearts. And essentially their question is, like, who does this Jesus fellow think he is? Who is he to forgive sins? Well, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and I think rightly recognize that it is only God who can forgive. So they realize that Jesus is making a claim reserved for God alone. Uh, and you might, so you might be tempted to give the scribes a pass here. But in Matthew's account, so in Matthew's parallel account of this same story in his gospel, uh, Jesus' response to the scribes is very telling. When they question, he asks them, why do you think evil in your hearts? And that's Jesus' response in, in Matthew uh, to these scribes. And so the point is clear. The scribes came that day in skepticism of, in opposition to Jesus, here is this powerful, authoritative, divine Son of God, and they missed who He is. They do not know who stands in their midst. And they should have known better. Not only were these individuals experts in the Old Testament, the scribes that came that day came because they had heard of Jesus, they had heard of what He had been up to. Many, if not most, had heard Him and seen Him perform miraculous signs. They'd heard Him speak, they had seen Him performing the signs and wonders that He had been performing. And right before Jesus turns his attention to the paralytic, what had he been doing? He had been teaching them. But they still doubted, and they still questioned. And so we're supposed to see this great contrast between the faith of the friends of the paralytic and the doubt of the scribes, the opposition of the scribes. The, the paralytic and his friends weren't even able to make it into the house. They didn't hear Jesus preach that day, and yet they still believed in what they had already heard and what they had already seen. And they responded in faith to Jesus and were granted repentance. And the scribes do the opposite. And the great irony of, of this whole situation, the great irony of it all, is that in his response to the scribes, Jesus makes his power and authority and divinity clear. And look again at, at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Uh, these were not questions that the scribes were voicing out loud. This was not a vocal opposition to Jesus. Uh, Jesus was perceiving the thoughts of their hearts. And friends, God alone can forgive sins, and God alone can perceive the thoughts of the human heart. But Jesus did more than simply perceive their thoughts. He challenges them. Uh, he asks them, why do you question these things in your hearts? In other words, you've heard my teaching. You've seen and heard the things that I have been doing. You have ample evidence of my power and authority. Why do you still doubt? Why are you opposed to me? And he follows that with another question in, in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, there's a great sense in which neither of those things are very easy, right? No man uh, outside of the power of God working in and through him could make the paralytic walk. Even with all the achievements of modern medicine, that is still something that is largely outside of the reach of man. And no man can forgive sins, and that is certain. But the point Jesus is making is that in another sense, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say rise and take up your bed and walk. And that's for the simple reason that only one of those two statements is verifiable. We cannot see whether a man's sins are forgiven. We cannot look into a man's heart. 
but we can sure see whether he can get up and walk. The crowds there that day could sure see if this man was going to get up and walk. And so that leads us to both our, our final point and the climax of the story. And so Jesus, in your response, is the final point, but I want us to look here starting in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So, I mean, imagine the scene if this was your very first time hearing the story. It's difficult for those of you who have been in church your whole lives, who have read the Bible, it's tough to go back and think what it would be like to hear this story for the first time. Or, or imagine the scene if you were in the crowd that day. Like Jesus has just told the paralytic man to get up and go home. And I could imagine that you could hear a pin drop in that room. Like, what is going to happen? Like all eyes are going to be fixed on the front. Nobody's going to be hardly taking a breath. They want to see, is this guy actually going to get up, take up his mat, and go home? And this, friends, is the climax of the story, what everything to this point has been building towards. And it's at the climax of the story that we find the main point of the story. Uh, that's often what happens in the gospel, and the story is no exception. So more than anything else, this is what Mark wanted his readers to see. More than anything else, this is what Mark wanted his readers to understand. And the point is this. If this man gets up and walks out, there is no reason to doubt that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. If the man gets up and walks out, there is no reason to doubt that Jesus is worthy of our faith and trust. Uh, if Jesus gets up and walks out, there is no reason to be opposed to Jesus, to doubt Jesus, to question him in, in your heart. I mean, Jesus himself says this. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, this is why I'm doing it, so that you know this. And that is just what happens. The man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And so in performing this just amazing, this miraculous sign, I mean, you can just imagine the reaction of the crowds. Well, Jesus makes the purpose for his performance of these miraculous deeds clear. Yes, he had compassion on the people he interacted with. He had compassion for their needs and for their suffering. But fundamentally, his miracles were a demonstration of his own power and his own authority, authority and his own divinity. His signs and wonders were a demonstration of who he was. They were a proclamation of the kingdom of, that the kingdom of God was near, that the effects of sin were being revo- reversed, and an invitation for those who witnessed them to put their faith in that which was not seen. That Jesus wasn't just a man, but he was the divine savior of the world. That he was the Messiah. And that the forgiveness of sins, that salvation could only be found in him. And in fact, the, uh, the astute reader of Mark's gospel would have seen hints of this same message in the previous story uh, when Jesus healed the leper. And we just sang about this a few minutes ago when Jesus paid it all. In Mark 1.41, uh, Jesus encounters a a leper, and he stretches out his hand, he touches the leper, and the leper was made clean. Now, the Old Testament law made it abundantly clear that those who were to touch somebody that had leprosy were going to be made unclean themselves, and yet that is not what happens in that story. Instead, Jesus makes the leper clean. Throughout the Bible, leprosy is a picture, either literally or figuratively, of sin. And so, even in this healing of the leper, even though that Jesus reaches out and in reaching out makes this man clean, Jesus is giving an indication that he does have the power and authority to forgive sins. He has the power and authority to make clean that which is unclean. He has the power and authority to make clean 
the uncleanness of the human heart. He has the power and authority to forgive the sin that resides in the human heart. And friends, this this amazing reality of who Jesus is necessitates a response. It invites a response from those who hear. And Mark highlights three different responses to Jesus in the text and throughout his gospel. The response of the scribes, the response of the crowds, and the response of the paralytic and his friends, which is the response of faith. So I want to take a moment and just kind of walk back through those responses briefly in light of the picture that Mark has given us of Jesus. And as we walk back through these responses, I want you to ponder a question. I want you to ponder which of these responses best characterizes your own response. How will you respond now that you've been confronted with the divine Savior of the world? What will you do with this story of Christmas, about a story of a divine Savior coming to earth, about God taking on flesh? What will you do with the story of Christmas that you have been hearing year after year after year? Well, first, will you respond like the scribes? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you doubt Jesus. You're skeptical of the claims of Christianity. Maybe you think it's a bit silly that people really think Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth, that this was a historical reality that we have been talking about all morning, not just some made-up story. Or maybe you just wonder, how can you be sure that God exists, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is who the Bible claims he is? So I want to take a moment to talk to those of you who know yourself not to be Christians, Or maybe you're just sitting here this morning and you're just not sure. You know, maybe you think that if Jesus really healed this man and you had been there, then you would believe. Or if you had been sitting with the shepherds in a field 2,000 years ago when this whole host of angels comes and proclaims and announces his birth, then you would believe. Or if today God would just do something equally amazing to one of those two things and you were there to see it, uh, well, then you would believe. But that's not the picture that Mark paints of the scribes and the Pharisees that witnessed this miracle. No, though they see this man take up his mat and walk, this is really just the beginning of their questioning of and opposition to Jesus. I mean, you can go home this afternoon and just read the next couple chapters of Mark. They question him for eating with sinners and tax collectors. They accuse his disciples of ignoring Sabbath law. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and they begin plotting how to destroy him for doing that. Eventually, they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So Mark paints a very damning picture of their rejection of him. They failed to recognize who Jesus was. They doubt Jesus. They are opposed to Jesus in spite of the signs and the wonders that he performs. You know, I think we often sit here and ask ourselves, why? Like, how could they see these things and not believe? Well, the fundamental reason is because their doubt and questioning did not come from a lack of evidence came from the wickedness of their own hearts, hearts that were opposed to God, hearts that were sinful, that were separated from God. They didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And much later in Mark, near the end of Jesus's life, when the scribes and Pharisees hand Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified, Mark records that Jesus perceived that it was out of envy that they handed him over. They were jealous of losing their position to Jesus. They had the respect of the crowds and the people that day as the religious leaders of that day. They were jealous of these crowds who were following Jesus, who were making much of these miracles that he was performing. So the doubts of the scribes, they sprung from their own sinful desires. It wasn't a lack of evidence that led to their doubt. It was their sin. At the end of the day, they had the same fundamental need of the paralytic. They just didn't see it. They needed to be forgiven 
They needed their sins cleansed, and Jesus was calling them to repent and believe, but instead they hardened their hearts in opposition to him. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they had ample evidence of who Jesus was. And friends, I'd like to gently suggest to you this morning that so do you. If you are here and know yourself not to be a Christian, it is not for lack of evidence that you doubt and question the claims of Christianity. I mean, how can I say this? Well, for one, because God has revealed himself in creation. Read that in Psalm 19 in Romans chapter 1. But more importantly, he has revealed himself in his word. God has revealed himself to you in his word. He has given you this whole Bible, all of which reveal the glorious person and the work of Jesus Christ. But I can also say it because Jesus has performed a much greater sign than the healing of the paralytic. Friends, Jesus did not only come to earth and take on flesh. Not only was he born to a virgin 2,000 years ago, not only did he live a sinless life and die a painful death on a Roman cross, a painful and undeserved death on the cross. He rose again. He is alive. He is risen. Death could not hold him. And the New Testament that you hold in your hands is written mostly by those who are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord, who saw Jesus after he rose, who saw him following his resurrection. But friends, we don't have time this morning to go examine all the evidence for the resurrection. And friends, quite frankly, if we see the response of the scribes, I don't know if going through all the evidence of the resurrection is what is going to be able to tip the scales anyway. Friends, what the point I'm making is that faith is a matter of the heart. Look, I hope I have presented a compelling picture of who Jesus is to you this morning. But if I haven't, I certainly know that God's word has. So friends, if you don't know this Jesus, I urge you to search his word, to approach him in humble repentance today, ask him to meet your greatest need to forgive and cleanse you from your sins. Because only he can. It is only Jesus who has the power to forgive. And he promises if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so to my Christian brothers and sisters here today, you may still struggle to have full faith in Jesus' power and authority to forgive. You know, perhaps you struggle with assurance over your own salvation. Perhaps you wonder whether God could have truly forgiven the sins that you committed in your past, the sins that you committed just this week, or the sins that you're going to commit in the future. Maybe you'd struggle to share your faith because you don't think that a coworker or a friend could possibly believe. Uh, maybe you've lost faith that after praying for years that your children or parents or siblings or friends would come to faith, uh, that you've just started to doubt that Jesus actually has the power to make that happen. Uh, look, doubt isn't something that magically vanishes at the moment of salvation. Uh, faith is a gift to the Spirit. The Christian life consists of fighting the good fight of the faith. But if that is you this morning, I want to encourage you to ponder anew your glorious Savior. Look to Jesus who took on flesh, who died, and who rose again. I just had the, the privilege this morning of sitting in the Roman Sunday school class that, that Larry was teaching, and in God's providence, we were looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, which talks about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because of who Christ is, because of what he has done, because God in his grace sent his son to die on the cross because he gave us the gift of his son. There's nothing that can separate us from the, from the love of Christ. It's just a wonderful reflection, a wonderful time to take and reflect on who Jesus is, what he had done, and to give us assurance uh, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
So let the story of the paralytic encourage you. Jesus healed him simply by the power of his word in a moment, in a time, in a place he wasn't even expecting it. And friends, follow the example of the paralytic's friends and run to Jesus. If they had stopped to consider the paralytic's condition or his situation, they too may have been hopeless. I mean, who knows how long they may have been praying for their friend? Who knows how long they may may have been hoping for his healing? But they fix their eyes and their hopes on Christ, and I want to encourage you to do the same. So that's first, will you respond like the scribes? Or second, will you respond like the crowds? I mean, the response of the crowds looks pretty good, certainly in comparison to the scribes. In verse 12, it says that they were all amazed and glorified God. But on a closer reading of the text, there are hints that their response is at least incomplete. The story closes with the crowds expressing amazement for what they saw. They proclaim, we never saw anything like this. Uh, The account in Luke's gospel says the same thing, that they were amazed at what they had seen. But it may be Matthew's account that is the most telling. As he concludes his account of this story, he writes, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Well, first, let me say it's good to give praise to God for what we can see. It's it's great to give praise to God for glorious and visible demonstrations of his power. Uh, So what is the problem? Well, I think the problem is that Jesus healed the paralytic to call them to faith in what they could not see. Uh, That Jesus had the power to forgive sins. The crowds weren't to marvel that God had given such authority to men, but to recognize that Jesus was more than a man, that he was the Messiah, that he was God incarnate, that he was the Savior of the world. Now look, I don't think it was that no one in the crowds believed, but the picture that the gospel writers paint of the crowds is largely a people who were there to be entertained, to get their physical needs met, who turned back from Jesus when his teaching got difficult. Uh, So one of my family's favorite home videos is a video of my youngest brother on Christmas morning when he's very young, probably one or two years old. And all he does the whole video is eagerly unwrap one present after another. As soon as he finishes, he puts it down. He waddles over to the next, he waddles over to one of uh, my parents and says, where's my another one? Uh, He's too young to understand the need for gratitude. He just wanted the next gift. Uh, He had no interest in who had given him these gifts. He had no interest in expressing thankfulness to the giver of these gifts. He just wanted what was next. Actually, I don't even know if he wanted what was next. That was just the thing we were doing. Uh, But this is a little bit of the crowd's response to Jesus. They just wanted to see what he he was going to do next, uh, what they could get from him, uh, what he was going to provide. They didn't truly have an interest in the Savior who stood before them. I mean, in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this about the people of Capernaum, uh, the very people who were there that day, the very people who are witnessing what Jesus did. Uh, in, in that section in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this. He says, in you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Like the scribes, I think the crowds there remain largely unchanged by what they saw that day. While they glorified God for what they could see, they didn't come for Jesus himself. They didn't see their own need to be forgiven. They missed it. So in a a Pew Research study from 2018, a full 23% of those who called themselves religious but did not did not regularly attend services. They said the reason they didn't go is because they hadn't found a church they like, something that appealed to their desires, something that they ministered to their felt needs, uh, and so they didn't go. 
well, that's not great, but perhaps more alarming is in that same survey, nearly 40% of regular churchgoers said one of the following was the most important reason for their church attendance. Not just one of the reasons, but the most important reason. Uh, those reasons include, to, some said, to, to be a better person. Uh, some said to be part of a community of faith. Others said for, for comfort in tough times. Others said because they wanted to raise their children morally. They saw this as a way to raise their children morally. Uh, others said because they, they got some value, uh, some personal value out of the sermon. And others said it was to please their spouse or family or continue some family tradition. There was some sense of obligation that led them to come regularly. Well, very few of those reasons are bad in and of themselves, but there's a big problem when they are the most important reason for someone's church attendance or religious engagement. Uh, those reasons have nothing to do with God himself, nothing to do with thanksgiving for God's mercy and grace, nothing about obedience or uh, really gathering with God's people, nothing to do with giving God the glory he is due. They are, they are self-focused. Uh, like the crowds, those responses miss the point. They're looking for, uh, what does me going to church have to give to me? And so what about you this morning? Why did you come to church this morning? Is it just because that is what your family does around Christmas? Maybe you're looking for a little joy or a little community uh, during the holidays. What is it that you're looking for Jesus to provide? Is it, is it mercy? Is it grace? Is it forgiveness? Or is it something else? You know, what is revealed by the content of your own prayer life? Do you only ask God to meet your physical needs? Or do you also come before him in confession, in praise, in thanksgiving for what he has done, for the gift of, for the gift of his son? You know, are you tempted to think that you must have done something wrong or outside of God's will if life gets difficult? Have you allowed yourself to subtly believe that Jesus is there to fulfill your desires and to make your life easier? And what do you give God praise for publicly? What conclusions would people draw from your own social media feeds, from your Twitter accounts, that you're blessed in Christ because you are forgiven, because you are a needy sinner in need of a Savior in Christ, and God has met that need in Christ? Or would they conclude that you're blessed in Christ because life is good? Now, it's not wrong to give God praise for the good things that come your way. They're a gift, and we should give God praise. But I'm asking if you subtly moved your affection to the gifts rather than the giver. The crowds loved the gifts. They loved the miracles, but they largely didn't love the Savior. And so the final question is, will you respond this morning like the paralytic and his friends? Will you respond in faith? Will you draw near to Christ? We find these words in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And brothers and sisters, those verses from James is a picture of what it looks like to respond to God in faith. And when you have the same desire to draw near to the Lord as the friends of the paralytic, a desire that led them to dig through a roof to get to Jesus, you will respond by daily humbling yourself before the Lord, by coming before him and confessing your sins to him, by seeking to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts in daily confession and resting in his grace. When you sin, if you have the same kind of desire to draw near to the Lord as those men, if you have an understanding of your own neediness, you'll respond like David did following his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the words that we read in Psalm 51, you will be 
desperate for God to create in you a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within you, and to restore to you the joy of his salvation. And brothers and sisters, you can draw near to the Lord in confidence and in faith because you have the promise that God will draw near to you. Jesus is mighty to save, and Jesus has already drawn near to sinful men by coming to earth. It's what we celebrate on Christmas. Uh, We were separated for God, but God has drawn near in Christ. He came to earth. He lived the life that we were unable to live and died a death on the cross. He was raised three days later. Jesus has cleansed sin by his blood for those who place their faith in him. And so as I close, let these words from Hebrews 7.25 encourage you this morning. He, he being Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. I mean, isn't that a great summary of the main point of, of our text for this morning? Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near by faith. He, this is the full verse, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a glorious picture of our loving Savior, a Savior who drew near, a Savior who healed and forgave, a Savior who gave his life on the cross, and a Savior who is right now at the right hand of the Father, serving his people by interceding for them. He is worthy of your faith and trust today and always. So please pray with me. Uh, Father, we, we do come as we have already come today, Lord, in humble repentance before you. Uh, Lord, knowing that our sins have separated us from you, but that you have made peace by the blood of your Son. Uh, Lord, it is a glorious picture. Lord, I pray that you would use Mark's text this morning. You would use your word, Lord, to help us see our need, that we have a need for our Savior, that you have met our need in Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would be led to place our faith in him, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.